Hi, writers. Welcome to our new episode on writing fiction. This is Jim Thayer. Should we as writers practice our craft? And if so, uh, how should we do it? What are the benefits? Octavia Butler, the Hugo and Nebula winning author of science fiction, says this, quote, Forget inspiration. Habit is more dependable. Habit will sustain you whether you're inspired or not. Habit will help you finish and polish your stories. Inspiration won't. Habit is persistence in practice. End quote. That's Octavia Butler. Let me suggest that we writers once in a while, or, or often, bring up a blank screen or a, or a piece of paper and practice. Write a paragraph, 50 words or 100, maybe a page, which is about 300 words. We should pick something and describe it, a standalone description or a standalone piece of action or, or dialogue uh, that we write just for practice, the practice of writing. Describe a person you know. How about this? Describe in 200 words the worst person you ever met. That'd be a challenge and it'd be fun. Describe a setting from your last vacation. Describe your dog or, or your favorite room in, in your childhood home. Or we can practice some sentences of dialogue, the back and forth of people talking, making it snappy and fun or, or threatening and dangerous, that dialogue. Or we can practice describing action, maybe a chase, uh, maybe a cowboy on a horse trying to rope a calf, or a junior high school cross-country meet. Why should we do this? For a lot of us, settling into the writing mode is hard. We need to find the time and the place, get our thoughts squared away, get the computer fired up, clear away our desks so so nothing is distracting, ask the kids to turn down the Xbox volume, uh, make room for the the cat who wants to be on our lap. Uh, For a lot of us, the, the transition from not writing to writing takes a while and has some obstacles. It's transaction time. It's like the 15 minutes it takes us to drive to the gym for a workout. It makes the workout less appealing and less available. We can practice getting going. And getting going will become easier and quicker. So practice, sitting down at the keyboard and filling half a page with writing, can get us into the habit of writing. It'll teach us to lessen the transition time from not writing to writing. We'll learn to sit down and write rather than to sit down, put our hands over the keyboard, then get up to make some tea, then realize the the cat litter box needs attended to, and, and then that the framed photos on the wall need to be straightened, and what about answering those texts? And I've used all these to stall. Practice will get us into the habit of getting going. Another thing practice will do is to get the creative juices flowing. Want some fun? Practice coming up with metaphors and similes, writing them down. She blushed, and her face was as red as, what, a rose? Nah, overused. 
as red as a pomegranate, as red as a turkey's <laughs> turkey's jowls. Are those things that hang there called jowls? I don't know. As red as a cherry, as red as a lobster, as red as a sunset, as red as a rooster, as red as a baboon's butt. Nah. We can splash them onto the screen and get into the habit of thinking in metaphors and similes and also getting into the habit of getting going. Or we can practice dialogue for a page, a a mother trying to convince her 14-year-old daughter that she shouldn't hang around with Sonia in her class because Sonia has a lot of bad ideas. We can write a page of this argument, let the words flow, getting into the habit of tapping the keys and learning how to write dialogue. And we'll likely find it easy to practice because doing so doesn't commit to anything but 15 minutes of our time. We aren't taking up the burden of literature. We're just practicing. We can dash it off and get the feeling of getting going and and of writing. And another reason when we try to work on our novel or short story, we might hesitate, is because we are facing the, as Jackson Bate, the biographer, says, quote, the inner resistance to dragging oneself hour after hour, to the bar of self-judgment, end quote. What if what we are writing isn't good? That thought can keep us from our keyboard when trying to write our novel or short story, but less so when we're practicing. We'll learn to hesitate less, because not everything we write during practice is meant for the ages or for a publisher. It's just practice. We get used to sitting down and writing. It becomes if not automatic, it becomes rehearsed, something we can do without hesitation. Remember earlier in your life when you practiced hard and long at something, the piano or violin or saxophone in junior high school, fielding ground balls, shooting hoops, maybe learning sleight of hand with coins and cards, learning to sew, learning to handle and ride a horse, Maybe we got into the habit of practicing back then, knowing it was needed to get better. We learned that practicing paid off. For for me, it was an odd experience, and bear with me a moment. For some reason, my mom and dad gave me for Christmas when I was 12 years old a unicycle. A unicycle? (laughs) Where did that idea come from, mom and dad? But there it was, unwrapped and near the Christmas tree, one wheel, a post, a seat, two pedals, and it taunted me. I quickly learned that unicycles are hard to learn to write. A bicycle is to a unicycle what the multiplication table is to trigonometry, what a peanut butter sandwich is to Thanksgiving dinner. I was 12 and uh, scatterbrained and good at nothing. But here was a unicycle, the weirdest thing I'd ever seen, and for some reason it captured me, and it became important for me to conquer the thing. It took me weeks and weeks of launching myself from a step near the front porch, up and onto the seat and over back down to the sidewalk, falling off again and again and again. I must have tried and failed 10,000 times. But I eventually 
figured it out. I learned, and in fact, over the weeks and months, I got, I got quite good at it, for example, and pardon me, this is bragging. I'm still proud of it. I could ride a unicycle down a set of stairs. Try that on a one-wheeled vehicle. It's hard. I haven't been on a... I don't know why I put it aside. I haven't been on a unicycle since my acne cleared up. But lately, I've been tempted to try it again. A unicycle isn't expensive. I could go out today and to a bike shop and buy one. Try it again. See if the mojo still is there. See if I've still got it. But why not just go directly to the emergency room instead of the intermediate step of trying a unicycle again? I didn't know it at the time, but I look back now and think that practicing the unicycle taught me the value of practice. You may have something in your history like that. You got good at something hard that you wanted to do, and you did it by practice. We can apply that lesson to writing. We can learn to do something, and we can get better at it. Practice works for writing, too. It works for unicycles and writing. You know that I am a dog with a bone about the subject of interior monologue, which is, of course, a character's thoughts. As mentioned last time, thoughts are easy to write because the writer doesn't need to much worry about cause and effect uh, and about being credible, and so we go, we go on at too much length. Let me offer some more thoughts on interior monologue and how to avoid too much of it. The key is that a character's thoughts aren't as interesting as action, dialogue, uh, character and setting description, even a backstory. I've suggested we keep character thoughts to a minimum. Here are some thoughts about thoughts and techniques regarding a, a character's thoughts. First, some interior monologue or character thinking is fine, but not too much of it. Try two or three or four sentences every once in a while. Uh, avoid a, a long paragraph or a page or, or heaven forfend pages of a character's thoughts. As mentioned last time, a character's thoughts aren't usually, uh, are, are usually the least interesting part of a novel. And I think agents and editors skip them. Uh, a second thought about thoughts. Make sure the thoughts are important. Our character wondering which necklace to wear or whether he should rake the yard or whether it's time to clean the fish aquarium shouldn't be in our story unless there's something significant hanging on those thoughts. A third idea about thoughts, readers are smart. They'll figure out what our character is thinking without us, the writer, having to lay it out in dull interior monologue. The readers will have been along with the character and seen his actions, heard his dialogue, uh, met his friends and enemies, and, and will gather the character's thoughts from the circumstances of the scene. For example, if, if we have adequately shown in prior scenes that our hero is unsure of himself around women— which we could have shown in a dozen ways earlier in the novel, then having our hero, as he about to try to kiss a girl, wonder about whether he should try and why he is shy around girls and what it all means, isn't needed. This would be enough. Scott leaned toward her, but stopped. He bit his lower lip and moved closer. She eyed him coolly 
and her mouth turned up. <laughs> I read a lot of coming-of-age novels, and this could be a strong scene, with him hesitant and her sort of egging him on, but also being amused at his shyness. The reader will have gotten it. A dozen sentences regarding what Scott is thinking aren't needed here. Those dozen sentences of interior monologue, uh, interior monologue would likely kill the scene. The reader already knows he's shy and wants to see what happens next, not read Scott's 15 sentences about being unsure of himself around girls. What if the reader doesn't already know he's shy? Add a sentence or two earlier in the novel that shows it. This would be enough. Showing something earlier in the novel, such as when Elizabeth smiled at him, he caught his breath and turned away earlier in the novel. You could insert that. If you plant a sentence or two of this earlier in the story, there's no need for long thoughts about being shy when the big kissing scene comes. A fourth idea about, about interior monologue. A great fault with interior monologue is that it is telling rather than showing. It tells what the character is thinking rather than showing. As you know, showing is stronger writing than telling. Showing reveals while telling explains. Readers would rather discover something for themselves, which is showing, rather than reading a lecture about it, which is telling. Revealing is much more involving for the reader than is hearing the writer explain something. So what do I mean regarding a character's thoughts? Here's an example. Sarah wondered what was on the other side of the door. She thought she had heard a sound, but wasn't sure. She was afraid to go into the house. This is classic interior monologue, and it tells the reader what she's thinking. How about this instead, showing the reader? Sarah put her hand on the doorknob. A squeak or a cry, some sound came from the house. She caught her lower lip in her teeth, then walked back down the steps. Here, we know something's up. She doesn't want to go into the house. The reader will in all likelihood know the reason because we writers have made it clear. She's afraid of whatever is on the other side. A couple other short examples. Casey didn't like the darkness. Well, that's telling. Instead, turn off the light right away. Turn on the light right away, please. That's showing. It's showing Casey's afraid of the dark. Or uh, another example in a first-person novel. I was cold and didn't know where the jacket was. That's telling. It's interior monologue. Instead, she shivered and opened the closet, but the jacket wasn't there. Well, that's showing. It shows what she's thinking. Another example. She wondered if Ron was home. Probably not. That's interior monologue. Instead, she dialed his cell phone. When he answered, a loud party could be heard in the background. She hung up. Well, that's, that's action. We learn what she's thinking without having her to th uh, have to think it. Here's a, a fifth thought. The worst kind of interior monologue is navel-gazing. Navel-gazing and I'm talking about that weird thing on our tummies, not, not the U.S. military force at sea. 
Navel-gazing is where the character thinks about how she feels about things. Here's, uh, she's thinking about how she feels. Here's some navel-gazing, which I had the displeasure of just writing a few minutes ago. Amanda wondered if Justin would meet her at the beach. He had said he was busy, but might see her there. No commitment from him or from her. She hadn't exactly promised she'd go to the beach either. But maybe they would sort of run into each other. She didn't know him well, but liked his laugh. Her, ex-boy, her ex-boyfriend, who had dumped her after six months, had also had a big laugh. Maybe she was susceptible to men with hearty laughter, and she thought she could always tell the difference between a courtesy chuckle and a real laugh. Amanda's father had an explosive laugh and sometimes found things funny no one else did. Justin was the same, often inappropriate laughs, and she was charmed by them. But was that all there was to <laughs> was that all there was to Justin a laugh? Surely not. She was at an age where a person's exterior, including his laugh, is is that part of the exterior, meant less to her. A person's surface only meant so much. She wanted substance, some grit, and maybe even courage. Not physical courage, perhaps, but courage to do the, to do the right thing when called on to do so. She thought, ellipses of four periods, I wrote this in 90 seconds. It's easy. It's awful. I could have gone on and on and on, the thoughts just pouring onto the screen, on and on, writing and writing, Amanda's thinking and thinking, sharpening the emotional pencil down to a nub until it's just a perfect reflection of what the character is thinking at that moment, with Amanda's main thoughts and her auxiliary thoughts and her addendum thoughts, her her counter thoughts, accessory thoughts, reserve thoughts, and every other little thought that jumps into my mind to give my character. Navel-gazing is remarkably seductive for writers, especially of romance, literary fiction, coming-of-age fiction, women's fiction, but even other, uh, even of other more action-oriented genres. We should resist the urge to type all this down. It just isn't interesting, navel-gazing. Here's another thought. Uh, we shouldn't use our thoughts, our interior monologue in our story as, as therapy for ourselves. I hope this doesn't uh, sound insensitive. Diaries are the place to work out our anxieties in real lives if you, if you want to commit them to words or call it a journal or a letter to ourselves. We shouldn't use interior monologue in our novels as therapy for ourselves in the guise of our protagonist thinking and thinking and thinking. Have you just broken up with your girlfriend? Your novel probably isn't the right place to work out your feelings about her and life in general. Um, This sounds harsh. Sure, we should use any reasonable tool we can to lessen mental stress. But try not to do it in our fiction. We shouldn't expect readers to find it entertaining. Here's another thought, a seventh thought about our character's thinking. What if we can't figure out a way to get across what a character is thinking in a scene? It's likely that the scene isn't where such thoughts need to be told to the reader. That scene. 
We can ration our protagonist's thoughts. We writers have an urge, once we get something figured out, to lay it out for the reader right away. We don't need to. We don't need to let the reader know everything in the hero's head right now. Save it for later. Later there might be a way to reveal, to show the reader what the character is thinking via action or dialogue. So those are some thoughts about interior monologue, our character's thinking. In some, we shouldn't have much of it. It isn't as interesting as other elements uh, in our novel. You may have heard of the bulwer lighten fiction contest. I mentioned it in an earlier podcast. It's a contest held annually and sponsored by the English Department of San Jose State University in San Jose. Entrants are invited, quote, to compose the opening sentence to the worst of all, <laughs> to the worst of all possible novels, end quote. Uh, that is a sentence that is deliberately bad. Here is the 2022 Bulwer-Lighton Contest winner. It uh, was written by John Farmer of Aurora, Colorado. And listen to this, quote, I knew she was trouble the second she walked into my 24-hour <laughs> into my 24-hour deli, laundromat and detective agency. And after dropping a load of unmentionables in one of the heavy-duty machines, a mistake that would soon turn deadly. She turned to me asking for two things: find her <laughs> find her missing husband and make her a salami on <laughs> make her a salami on rye with spicy mustard breaking into tears when I told her I couldn't help. I was fresh out of salami. That is the 2022 winner. Here's the 2021 winner, and it's Stu Duvall of Auckland, New Zealand. Quote, A lecherous sunrise flaunted itself over a flatulent sea, ripping the obsidian, obsidian bodice of night asunder with its rapacious fingers of gold, thus exposing her dusky bosom to the dawn's ogling stare. <laughs> that deserves to win. That's Stu Duvall of Auckland. And here is the 2020 winner. It's uh, written by Lisa Kluber of San Francisco. Quote, Her dear John missive flapped unambiguously in the windy breeze, hanging like a pizza menu on the doorknob of my mind. End quote. That's Lisa Kluber. These are wonderfully bad sentences at the bulwer Lighten Contest. That's all for this episode. I'm glad you were here for it. Uh, until next time, this is Jim Thayer. Please keep tapping those keys. <laughs>